0: We' continuing our study in, in Matthew's gospel and I'll ask you to turn there if you have a Bible with you there are some Bibles in the in the chair under the chairs in the chair in front of you hopefully you can find one there if you don't have one you might have it on your phone or your tablet Matthew chapter 22 now uh, before we get into this passage, which today the assigned passage starts in verse 15 and continues to the end of the chapter, but I'd like to just put on the screen a few verses from John's gospel before we start. And the first one, first three verses, we read this, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This morning, I'd like to focus a little bit on this one who is described here as the Word of God. I want to think a bit about him. I hope that as we look at the passage in Matthew's Gospel, This morning that we will see something of his glory. We will see his glory, his grace, and his truth. The word of God. That we would see the power of the word. The sovereignty of this one who is the word. His majesty is supremacy. He is transcendent. The assigned passage involves four short interchanges that the Lord had, exchanges, verbal conversations that he had with people who were opposed to him, his adversaries, four short exchanges that he has with the Jewish leaders. Three of these are planned attacks by these Jewish leaders, Seeking to discredit him. They are trying to ensnare him. They are orchestrated attempts by some of the brightest minds of those who were opposed to the Lord. Seeking to bring him down. They're hoping that he might impugn himself by the things that he says legally. Or or perhaps discredit himself before the crowds which have been coming to flock to hear him speak. This is the incarnate word of God. And so we'll begin in chapter 22 and verse 15. And let's just read that one verse 15 before we begin. There we read this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. The Pharisees went and plotted. How they might entangle him in his talk, in his words, some of you might have in your translation. The word that is translated here, I've highlighted on the screen, the word talk, or you might have words, is the same word in the Greek language as we read in John chapter 1. The one who is the word. Of God. The Word was made flesh. They come to entangle Him in His words. How pathetic that the puny minds of men try to assail the incarnate Word of God in His talk, by His words. They try, by their mastery and by their cunning and by their combined intelligence, to outwit the mind of the omniscient. The creature tries to take down the creator by by trickery and we're going to see it just doesn't work. They want to trip him up so the crowds might be disillusioned and start to abandon him, but their efforts have the opposite effect. And we will read in verse 33, for example, that the multitudes heard his responses and they were astonished at his teaching. And rather than uh, causing the crowds to turn away from him, their interactions with the Lord had the opposite effect as they drew closer to him and were marveling at all that he had to say. Jesus was able to completely shut down their conversation and their efforts and their attempts To discredit him. The background of the passage that we're looking at today is, is that these things happened on Passion Week, what we sometimes call Passion Week. It's the last week of the Lord's ministry on earth. It is the last week before he goes to the cross of Calvary. And there's not complete agreement on this, but most uh, scholars would place the events that we're going to read today on, on the Tuesday of that week. The Lord went to the cross on Friday less than 72 hours before the lord goes to the cross and these adversaries come to him to challenge him the lord knows all that's going to take place the disciples listening on they really don't have a clue about what's going to happen over the next few days the adversaries of the lord these opponents that are confronting him are trying to find ways to bring him down but they they don't understand either all that's going to happen they don't know the flow of events that's going to take place in the hours that, that follow. But the Lord, of course, does. The Lord knows all about what's going to happen. He knows that his disciples are going to forsake him and flee. He knows about the scourging that's going to take place. The trial before that false counsel. He knows all of that. He knows that They will put nails through his hands and through his feet and he will hang on a cross. He knows that there will be three dark hours when the Father forsakes him. The Lord knows all that's going to come. And this is uh, preceding those events. What we're going to read about comes at that critical point in time. The verse says that they plotted how they might entangle him. They went away and discussed together. The word that's translated here, plotted, might be translated in some of your versions as they made it counsel, they took counsel together. The idea is they met together and deliberately made a plan. Here in Matthew's gospel, it says that the Pharisees plotted together We could perhaps gather from Luke's account that the enemies got together. And we see a little bit later the Sadducees involved in this. We see in this account the Herodians involved in this. You might understand that the groups all got together to plot together how they would take down their common enemy. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians were by no means of the same mind. They thought alike on very little. But this they all agreed on. They wanted no part of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was their common enemy. And so the common enemy of these three brings them together to plot and to conceive how they might bring him down. There was a great problem for these Jewish leaders, you see. The problem was that the crowds were gathering to hear the Lord. The crowds were very interested in all that Jesus had to say. They were enthralled with his words and with his power and with his ministry and with his healings. And the leaders of the Jews were jealous of this and they were feeling threatened. We read this in the preceding chapter. This is the context of this. We find in chapter 21, for example, this this uh, expression that, When he had come into Jerusalem, all the crowds, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? This is the time of the triumphal entry. Just a couple days earlier, when the Lord had come into the city, and the people flocked together and hailed him as the Messiah. He was coming. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, recognizing him as the son of David. And the crowds were gathered around, and the Pharisees, And the Sadducees, and the Jewish leaders, and the priests, and the Levites, and the scribes gathered together, and they saw this happening, and they didn't like it. They were concerned. They felt threatened. A little later in the same chapter preceding the one we're looking at. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. And they saw the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And they, they were indignant. A few verses later, they were plotting how they might take this man. They recognized that he was speaking parables that were designed to pinpoint their error and their sin. They didn't like it. And They said, let's take him. Let's arrest him. But they said... We can't do it. Well, the people are looking on. The Lord confronted them and said, what do you think about the ministry of John the Baptist? Oh, they wanted to be careful what they would say here. They said that uh, he was from God, that people would say, well, why aren't you following him? But if, uh, if we say that it was from men, oh, well, they feared the multitude. They feared the people. And at the end of the chapter, the preceding chapter, as the Lord concludes these parables that we looked at last week, they recognized that he was speaking against them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. And so these religious leaders had a problem. The Lord was saying things that they didn't like. He was drawing crowds away from their teaching and towards himself. The people were enthralled that he had to say, and they couldn't stop it. They didn't know what to do. This continued even on for the next few days as as the week unfolded. And we read in a couple chapters later, before the Lord goes to the cross, the the scribes, that. The chief priests, the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. People were coming to hear what the Lord had to say. They were coming to attend to his ministry, to his teaching. They were interested in the power, the power of his words. The wisdom that he shared with them. Earlier, these chief priests had tried to arrest the Lord. We, we read about this in John's gospel in chapter 7. And they sent their officers out to arrest him. And those officers uh, came back without him. And the chief priest said, what are you doing coming back? Why didn't you take him? What's going on? Their response was this. Never a man spoke like this man. The power of his words. The word of God. Chapter seven of Matthew's Gospel. After the Sermon on the Mount, we read that when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority as not and not as the scribes. Again in Matthew chapter 13, when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue and they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? They were astonished at his teaching. Now, these religious leaders, these scribes, these Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, came together to plot how they would deal with this problem. Luke's gospel records this event in chapter 15 that we have in, or verse 15 that we have in Matthew 22. Luke also records these events. And there, are these people that these Pharisees sent are described as, as spies. They went surreptitiously to try to uh, undermine the Lord. It so says they watched him. We get a sense of, of their hypocrisy as we read these first few verses. We will in just a minute. But Luke records blatantly that they came pretending to be righteous. They came pretending to be righteous in order to deliver him to the to the authority of the governor. They were looking for some way to trap him so that he could be arrested and prosecuted not just by their laws, Jewish laws, but under the Roman authority who was governing the land. The whole council was represented. Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees. They came <coughs> pretending to be righteous. The passage that we have for us today is in four parts. We have, first of all, a little section which deals with a question of taxes. They came to the Lord with a question about taxes. Then we have a little section that deals with a question of resurrection. Sadducees brought to him. And then they engage with him in a question about the law. These three, these first three, are attempts by these leaders to trip the Lord up, to cause him to say something that would embarrass him or would humiliate him or would make him guilty of some crime. The fourth one turns the tables where the Lord turns and asks them a question and engages with them in a question. In all of these, we see the wisdom of God, we see his mastery, we see his supremacy, we see his transcendence over all of those who were his enemies. You know, the root of the problem here was not in what the Lord was saying. These religious leaders had a problem with what the Lord was saying, but their problem really was in themselves. Their problem was that they considered him to be a threat, a threat to their authority, a threat to their influence. The real issue that they brought to him was not about taxes or resurrections. Their concern really wasn't about these questions that they were going to raise. These questions were just tools that they would use in their attempts to undermine the Lord. But we see God's wisdom shine through in the responses of the Lord. The responses illustrate that he is greater, greater than all else. Look at the closing verses of this section. Verse 41 to 44, the Lord quotes a psalm from the Old Testament. And we'll come to that section in a minute, but there the Lord points out that the Messiah is greater. The Messiah is transcendent. The real problem that these religious leaders had, the leaders of the Jews, is that they refused to acknowledge that. They refused to accept that Jesus was the Messiah. They refused to accept that he was God in the flesh. They refused to acknowledge that he was the word of God who had spoken the universe into place. Not so much that they didn't understand that, although they certainly didn't fully understand it, But more tragic than that, the problem was that they would not accept that. It was their choice not to accept that Jesus was who he claimed to be, despite all the evidence that the Lord put forward to him. So they begin their attack with three questions. Let's read the first section here from verse 15 down to verse 22. When the Pharisees went, then the Pharisees went and plotted, how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the word of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of man. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. He said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's when they had heard these words, they marveled and they left him and went their way. The Lord was able to shut down this opposition. He exposes, first of all, their hypocrisy. In verse 18, he calls them hypocrites. And this is just the beginning. We'll see next week as we get into the next chapter that the Lord condemns them in the strongest terms. He recognizes their hypocrisy. These people were not coming to him because they had some concern about whether they should really pay taxes to Caesar or not. They brought this question to the Lord because they knew, or at least they thought they knew, that regardless of what he would say, he would be on the losing end. If he said that, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, then he would be going against the nationalistic pride of the people. These throngs who came to him hated paying these taxes to Caesar. Rome was a colonial power who had taken over the area. They were oppressing the people of Israel. The people of Israel despised these Roman leaders and they didn't like paying these Roman taxes. On the other hand, if the Lord said, no, we should not pay taxes to Caesar, that's really, I'm sure, what they were hoping for. Because then they would be able to take him before the governor immediately and claim that he was promoting insurrection, that he shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. In fact, what we find is that these Jewish leaders did exactly that, despite that the Lord didn't claim they shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. We find in Luke's gospel that they went to uh, the Roman authorities and claimed that Jesus was perpetrating the truth that taxes should not be paid, which is not at all what he said. They were hypocrites. They didn't come in sincerity before the Lord to uh, question him. The Lord responds here, With principles rather than with rules, and this great principle that he establishes is very insightful. We do have obligations to to God certainly, but we have obligations too to human authorities, and we need to recognize both of those. Peter was listening, no doubt, to what the Lord said as he spoke. And later he would write this in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17. Fear God, honor the king. There is balance to be had. We are citizens of heaven, but we are to honor those who have authority over us as well. Perhaps standing there among the Lord's Opponents among his adversaries could well have been a young man by the name of Saul. We don't know this. He might have heard what the Lord was saying here. He was one of their prime young men. After Saul's conversion, he would write in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, about the responsibilities and the balance that is required between showing respect and honor to God and showing appropriate allegiance to the state in which we live, governing authorities. But this passage is not really, I would suggest to you, about the appropriateness of whether we should pay tax and about the balance between serving God and honoring the king. As much as I've often heard this passage referred to to uh, enlighten us with regard to those principles. In fact, it is very enlightening. It's very helpful and useful information. It's extremely insightful in that regard. But the point that was being made here by the religious leaders and then by the Lord himself really wasn't about the facts that they're discussing. It was about the power of God to overcome these adversaries who were seeking to take him down. It was to display the greatness of the Lord. It was to demonstrate his glory. And this is what he does. The Spirit of God inserts this passage here for us. Not just so that we might have a record of the failures of the Jewish leaders. He inserts this passage here in Matthew's gospel for us so that we might learn ourselves how we ought to live. The Lord challenges the hypocrisy, the integrity of these leaders. And it's so easy for me to read this passage and to look at those religious leaders and say, shame, shame, how terrible they were. So easy for me to look about me in the world today and see people who I, who I can recognize as saying one thing but not really doing what they say. But God puts this passage in here so that I might look inward. He puts this passage in here so that you might look within your heart. God calls us, each of us, each of us, to be people of integrity to be people who adhere to what he says, and not just to give it lip service, but to honor it in our lives. And when I think about this with regard to my own life, I have to admit, I have to confess that this is a struggle. It is so easy for me to see hypocrisy in the lives of others. It's so hard for me to acknowledge that I am contaminated with it myself. And I would suggest to you that there are very few who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who can say that they are completely free of this sin, which was the sin of the Pharisees. And so let's examine our own hearts. Then they come to him with a question about the resurrection. The Sadducees come. Pharisees have failed. They've gone away with their tail between their legs. Embarrassed because the Lord has responded so well. Their attempts to bring him down have been frustrated. Verse 23. I'm getting a little behind here. I'm going to go ahead to the next Section. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother should marry his wife and raise up offspring to his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died having after he had married and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. The Lord here is going to expose the ignorance of these Sadducees, their failure in the knowledge of God and of the scripture and of God's power. The key verse I have put up on the screen, I would suggest for our discussion today and in any case, is verse 29 where he says, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. The Sadducees didn't take the scripture seriously. We sometimes read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and think that they were two similar groups, you know, in you know, two religious groups in the, in the days of the Lord. But in fact, they were very different groups. They were very different uh, people, a very different thought. And they agreed about very, very few things. Uh, The Sadducees and the Pharisees were really opponents most of the time, adversaries. The Pharisees were more of a religious party concerned about the law and how to apply it. We'll read a little more about them in the next section. The Sadducees were more of a political group. They were the ones who had uh, most of the control, political control in the nation. Sadly, the chief priests were of the Sadducees. The Sadducees had uh, much less interest in the law of God and the word of God. In fact, they rejected most of the Old Testament scripture and accepted only the Pentateuch. They didn't accept the poetic sections or the prophets as being part of God's word. They didn't believe that there was a resurrection. And the point of their question here with these seven brothers where they depict this rather bizarre scenario where seven different people marry this woman Um, is kind of absurd and deliberately so. Their point is is to try to make it obvious that the idea of resurrection is absurd. The story they depict is taken from the Old Testament, and uh, in in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we have this uh, this law, Deuteronomy 25, that says that you know if 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 a man dies and he has no children, his wife, his brother is to take his wife and raise up children, and the firstborn child of of that union will be considered to be the son of the deceased brother. And so, uh, and then it goes on to talk more about what is supposed to take place after that. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were on different ends of the spectrum with regard to resurrection. The Pharisees believed in it. The Sadducees did not. The Pharisees were quite strictly adherent to this belief. They they had all kinds of things that they believed about this resurrection. They had debates about... uh, ...whether the bodies that would be raised would be clothed or not clothed. They had debates about what clothing they would have. Would it be the clothing that the person wore when they died? They had, they had debates about uh, where a resurrection would take place and how it would take place and that Jewish people who died outside of Judea would be raised in Judea. They had all these ideas about resurrection. The Sadducees wanted none of this. They considered it all to be false. And so they come to the Lord with this question, believing that that this is going to trip up the Lord in some way. Sadducees had tried for generations to argue with the with the Pharisees about the Pharisees tried to convince the Sadducees of the truth of resurrection, and they would point to a number of passages that that they drew upon. We have record of debates that they had held and passages that that they cited from the Old Testament, from Numbers 18, from Deuteronomy 31, and so on, (coughs) as evidence that there would be a resurrection, but the Sadducees were not convinced. Sadducees rejected some of the writings of the prophets, and so appeals to Isaiah 26, or passages in the Song of Solomon, or to passages in Daniel which speak of the resurrection, were ineffective for the Sadducees because they didn't accept those passages of Scripture. The Pharisees were unsuccessful over the years in convincing the Sadducees of the truth of the resurrection, but the Lord, the Word, who was God, was able, with one citation from the Pentateuch, Demonstrate the truth of the resurrection. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Throughout the Old Testament, in a number of places, God is referred to in this way. Moses recognized God in this way. Moses lived long after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were dead. And God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord points out that God is the God of the living, not of the dead. When Moses heard those words, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were living, not dead. There's a lot that we could learn from this passage about the state of uh, our soul of after death, there's things we can learn from it, about the resurrection and the very insightful, very helpful. talks about angels, and I've heard ministry about about that. In fact, I would say most often when I hear this passage cited in a sermon, it is, it is something in regard to the human condition after, after death. but In its context, which I'm trying to consider this morning, I would say that that's not the the main point, at least not for today. This passage is not primarily, certainly in the minds of the Sadducees, about the nature of angels or about resurrection. This passage stresses the fact that there is life after death. But the passage is primarily about this. That the Lord has the ability, the authority, the sovereignty, the wisdom, the omniscience, the power to overcome his adversaries with a word from his mouth. He is able to draw upon the scriptures and demonstrate himself to be the son of God. These Sadducees had a number of failures. It says that they were led astray. Their knowledge of scripture was poor. They didn't know the scriptures as they ought. And they didn't know the power of God. So by way of application, let's think about that personally for ourselves rather than sit here and look condemningly down on the Sadducees, let's recognize that God puts this passage in here for us today for a reason. Do we know the scriptures as we ought? Do we understand what God is trying to say to us in the message of his word? Do we study it as we should? Do we recognize the power of God to work in our lives? Then we move on to the third passage. Verses 34 to 40. It says, But one of the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees and when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they had gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest, the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The Pharisees had dedicated their lives to a careful, meticulous observance of, of every commandment and rule and regulation that the scribes had worked out. There were not a lot of Pharisees, as we sometimes might be inclined to think. Some Some commentators who have studied this suggest that there might have been, at the most, 6,000 Pharisees. We tend to think about the Pharisees as representing the people, at least sometimes I tend to think of that. But in reality, um, the Pharisees were seen by, by many in the nation of Israel as being they accepted their leadership. They recognized them as uh, as religious and, and knowing God, knowing God's word to some degree, but their holier-than-thou attitude offended many. They had broken many of the laws that they claimed to uphold. The Pharisees had created, along with the scribes, myriads of rules and regulations developed from the law. <clears throat> Some have suggested that we can identify I think it's 613 laws in the Old Testament in the Pentateuch. I don't know if that's the case. I don't think the Pharisees particularly had that enumerated but they had developed from each of these Old Testament laws long lists of how they were to apply regulations. For example the law says that you're not to work on the Sabbath. So The Pharisees and the scribes determined from that how to apply it. What does work mean? What's the definition of work? How much are you allowed to carry? What's the weight? How many steps can you take on the Sabbath before it's considered to be work? What can you do and can't you do on the Sabbath? And so over some 50 volumes had been written about how to apply the Old Testament law. But as we'll see next week, they weren't able to keep the law. They weren't even able to keep the fundamentals of the law, but in their hypocrisy, they held it up as all important and committed themselves to to, the population saying, we are keepers of the law. They were not. And the Lord saw through this. Here they ask him, what is the greatest commandment? The greatest of all of these rules and regulations and laws that they prided themselves so much in following. The Lord answers in two parts, the first taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The Lord identifies this as the greatest commandment. (coughs) The second, like it, (coughs) to love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew doesn't record the response but Mark does in his account <clears throat> this lawyer who asked him and the Pharisees who stood by had to acknowledge that he had answered correctly this was right they recognized his wisdom and they couldn't refute him they had hoped that this would trip him up but it did not and so when the lord tells us that this is the most important of the commandments that it summarizes all of God's law, we need to think again about how we apply this ourselves. It is important that we love the Lord. We sang before I came up to speak, the greatest thing in all my life is loving you. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. I want to know you more. I want to love you more. I want to serve you more. This is the greatest commandment, where to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul. And so though they tried, they were not able to trip up the Lord. They were not able to capture him in his words. Very quickly, they realized that their efforts were backfiring on them. But before they could slip away, the Lord turned around and asked them a question. And this is how we conclude this passage. Verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, and now he quotes from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? The failure on the part of these religious leaders was that they did not understand who the Messiah really was. He exposes their misconceptions. They failed to acknowledge Christ's authority, and they failed to submit to the Lord's authority. That was the ultimate error of these Pharisees and Sadducees and Jewish leaders. Perhaps the key verse is in the beginning of verse 42, where we the Lord asked this question, what do you think about the Christ? That's what it's really all about. For them, for us, for you, for me, what do we think about the Christ? The Lord makes a profound statement here about who the Messiah is. The Jews thought of the Messiah in terms of politics and military power. They were looking for a Messiah to come and turn the, the, the nation around and make Israel prominent in the world again. The Lord points out that the Messiah is not just the son of David, as much as that is true. David himself recognizes that this one who would come from him, the Messiah, is his Lord, his Lord. And so the efforts of these religious leaders come to naught. They fail. In verse 46, we read, no one was able to answer him, a word, no one was able to answer him a word. Their word was powerless, impotent, ineffective against the one who is the word of God, the word of life, the incarnate word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Sadly, as is so often the case, people who are unable or unwilling to acknowledge that they are wrong often go on to resort to violence to get their way if they can't achieve their ends through debate or rational argument, even if they recognize that they are wrong, if they are determined to exert their will, they now turn to the only thing left to them, and that's violence. And that's what happens now to the Lord, as they resort to taking him by force and hanging him upon a cross. But there's much that happens yet. Before that day. And we'll start to hear more about that next week when Rick Oichel comes and takes us through chapter 23. I'm going to put uh, another passage up on the screen. I won't take time to reflect on it, but I'm going to put it there for you to read. I'll pray first, and then, Tom, you can just leave that up for a minute as we, as we depart. Father, we thank you for your word and for its power. We thank you for its instruction to us. And we pray that as we read it, uh, and, and in particular, as we read this passage, that we won't just see it as an indictment against the sinful people in the Lord's day, but that we will understand that we need to examine our own hearts. We, tr- we pray that, that we might live as people with integrity, people who, who know your word and, and understand the power of the Lord, our God, our Savior, people who will obey his commands and and submit to the authority of our Savior. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live this way. We marvel as the people in the Lord's day did at the wisdom and the power of the words of the Lord, of the things that he did, and of all that he said. And we recognize the word of life, the word who became flesh, and we bow before him this morning. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.